Welcome to Tomorrow Comes Today, the thought leadership podcast from St. James's Place that gets you out of your comfort zone. At least that's what we're going to be doing today, because we're going to be hearing perspectives from some unusual places that help us to change the way we think about things. And as per usual, I'm joined by Rob Gardner from St. James's Place. Morning there, Rob. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm very, very excited, actually, because this time, I think... I don't know, I feel like this episode of the podcast has has got a bit of a mission in the sense that we're using this platform, I suppose, to explode things out. And I know that's something close to your heart. Yeah, something I think we're going to hear later is this idea of of shining a spotlight on on things and whether it's George or Ashley or when we hear about Rising Phoenix. I I love the idea of shining a spotlight, like walking into a cave with a big giant torch and, and seeing things you've never seen before. So we've got a real treat today, haven't we? We've got a lot of interviews and a lot of guests, and they're all talking around these kind of different perspectives. We've got George Magnus, who's one of the world's foremost experts on China, helping us to step away from the kind of media narrative and think about the deep themes. Then we've got Ashley Walker. Uh, She's a fantastic US astrochemist who not only spots distant stars, but dissects them. And she's going to be talking to us about her involvement in getting more black scientists and academicians into academia and the welcome change in perspective that gives us. And then, of course, the big treat for this episode, there's a film, Rising Phoenix, on Netflix now about the the Paralympics. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Rob, we just talked about it in the the lead-up, didn't we? And your word, I think, was, wow. Yeah, my one-word review was, wow, it, it, it blew my mind. And so we've got the team behind that who kind of put it together. Luckily, we've got them in the studio, in the virtual studio with us today. But first, let's head to George Magnus. Now, he wrote Red Flags, the best-selling book on China uh, ever in terms of being a nonfiction book, and it was a foreign policy read. And this is quite an unusual feat, but actually it's really it's a really interesting read on, I suppose, reading the code that comes out of China and the fact that we're all, t- all told, you know, there's this big economy and it works like this and this is how it happens, but how to spot the signals and think a little bit differently around it. And we spoke to George earlier. China has risen to replace Russia, Serbia, former Soviet Union as this kind of byword for the other, as this kind of global competitor or slightly uh, this nation that we have to, that is almost incomprehensibly opposed to our way of doing things with which we have to deal nevertheless. Is that something that you see as being likely to go on and dictate the terms as well? I guess the othering of China. Yeah, it's certainly been remarkable in living in Britain, as I do, as we do. Um, Up until the pandemic, really, I I think there was certainly a relatively limited interest. I mean, I'm not saying that people weren't interested in China, because I've done, you know, sort of book fairs and, you know, audience participation things where, you know, a lot of people have been to China, um, you know, on holiday, for example. But I think the pandemic has changed people's perception about China. I think, fundamentally, the arguments that we have with China nowadays are not just about procurement or about access to different kinds of markets or about dumping of products. I mean, these are pretty standard trade spats uh, that we have with other countries all the time. Um, We happen to be having these with China as well, but they are really only the tip of the iceberg. I think fundamentally, 
um, I'm not sure if this is kind of commonly realized, but certainly I would argue, you know, China is a fundamentally Leninist state. And President Xi Jinping, when he came to power in 2012, basically took China off in a direction that I think was largely unexpected, um, and certainly towards a more authoritarian, a more ideologically controlling and um, sort of political direction in which standards, beliefs, values, governance, things that make a big difference to the way in which we we live and, and to the you know, environment in which we which we think is second nature, um, it is a threat. And I think we have to be rightfully on our guard now um, and, and try and see if there are still uh, opportunities for this relationship to stabilise, but in a different way from the way that it was. As you've written about recently, there's a, is there a sense of recognition that certain more outward-facing things have to be done, that the, the idea of the the Silk Road 2.0 must be really pushed, that that it must address some of the issues that it's got around um, the digital world and around technology and around IP and around how it's perceived and so on. Do you see these as kind of, I suppose, recognitions that something has to be done to turbocharge its prospects for the coming decade? Yes, I do. And actually, and, and more to the point, I think um, uh, Xi Jinping's government recognises that. So pe people are now kind of talking about the digital Silk Road, which is really about telecommunications, software, data, and so on, um, and about the health Silk Road, which the Chinese kind of added on this year uh, as a consequence of the pandemic and the need to, you know, to be able to supply, you know, PPE equipment and so on and so forth, and drugs and medicines, etc., so I think China's hope is that these kind of add-ons like the digital Silk Road and the health Silk Road will substitute in a way for bridges and highways and airports and seaports and so on um, to help sustain Chinese economic uh, engagement and involvement in Africa, Asia, Middle East, Latin America and so on. Um, and it's the way in which I think, you know, the Chinese would like to win hearts and minds and gain kind of compliance and support from other countries. And of course, there's never a day goes by at the moment when you don't hear about something about Huawei or something about TikTok or a new kind of, um, goodness me, shock horror China. How does that affect prospects for, for investors in companies within China, but, but specifically companies like these, where, you know, should people be, be almost, uh, I suppose, anticipating negative coverage and, and a certain amount of paranoia in among that healthy kind of um, scrutiny. Yeah, I think, you know, because of the nature of the poor relationship between uh, the countries involved, I mean, companies have been dragged into this. Now, in the case of Huawei, I mean, it is ostensibly a private company, but not in the way that we understand it. Um, it is almost certainly uh, much closer to the Chinese state than, um, let's say, Google or Instagram, you know, are in our world. And uh, there is something about telecommunications infrastructure, which is um, much more akin to, you know, the radar of the Second World War, should we say, than is the case with ByteDance and TikTok. I mean, yes, they collect a lot of data. Yes, they, you know, will have 
information on today's, you know, 16 to 25-year-olds, which they'll still have when these age, uh, this age cohort is, you know, 10 years older and, you know, uh, in you know, bigger and more serious jobs and so on and so forth. So there there are issues there. But I mean, I don't, I think we do have to discriminate a little bit between, you know, those companies that are genuinely um, regarded as potential threats to national security and where it's quite legitimate for us to kind of paddle our own canoe. Um, and those where maybe companies are being singled out as punishment. I mean, that and I'm not saying that the Americans are the only ones that do this, because in China they they do this too. Um, but it's it's obviously not good for business and for those companies that are resident in China, because they are they're there to tap and to to exploit the rising Chinese market. It does put their businesses and their employees in a bit of uh, at a bit of risk now, which wasn't there before. Reading your 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 book as I as I have red flags, it seems that it's it's. China is it is too big to be ignored and one can't really disengage and one is going to have to find a way of of riding with it and handling it in the in the best way do you have any any i guess guidance or advice for people either uh, at the helms of, of businesses or investment institutions or governments who might be I suppose teasing themselves into circles with this conundrum well i think obviously one of the things which financial services companies uh, have found um, to some degree is that it's a little bit easier than it is for, let's say, services companies, other services companies and manufacturing companies uh, to get market access. Um, but as a consequence of, you know, trade pressures, you know, market pressures, political pressures and so on, um, the Chinese are um, opening up uh, their financial services they market they they do like um, to have best practice in the country from which they can copy um, they do need access to foreign capital um, and so to some uh, financial services companies to the extent that it suits China I think uh, they might be knocking on an open door to a lot of other companies I think it's very much more difficult because they are faced with a similar kind of or not it's changing, but uh, they are faced with intellectual property issues and with procurement issues, with rules and regulations that favour local companies. My, I can only say it's my hope that we we do find areas where there are common interests and where our interests are aligned, and use that as a sort of a platform on which to to have dialogue. Because without that we could just get very frustrated and feisty with one another. And then you don't really know how misunderstandings and miscalculations can then take their own course. So dialogue is really important. George Magnus there on China. Now, Rob, there was a lot in that, wasn't there, to digest. But one of the key things seems to be this, this idea of just sort of looking around things and thinking thinking from, I suppose, the Chinese point of view. Yeah, look, I, I was thinking, I think China once as a tourist, uh, just after the Beijing Olympic Games, uh, and several times on business, SJP have offices there. I, I was very lucky that in my previous uh, company, I got to work with uh, lots of young Chinese students, and I'm and I'm still friends with them now, connected on on WeChat. And I always remember uh, someone very senior at Accenture saying, "Look, if you want to go and do business 
in China, you've got to understand that they see the world differently. So if the idea of getting to the airport and they scan your iris and they take your fingerprints and all the rest, if that freaks you out, that is the norm. You've got to remember for a billion people, that's normal. Now, if I was to say to you, Matt, name the top five banks in the world. Why don't you name the top five banks? Tell me the biggest banks you think around the world. I know where this is going, but I'm going to I'm going to say probably a lot of I'm going to say HSBC. I'm going to say a couple of, of the American banks. I'm going to say Merrill Lynch. I'm going to say a couple of investors. I'm going to say those. And I know that that's not the case. That's the thing. But I just don't know the Chinese. So at number one is Industrial <laughs> and Commercial Bank of China. At number two is China Construction Bank Corporation. At number three is Agricultural Bank of China, and at number four is Bank of China. And then in five is JP Morgan, and then six is HSBC, and at eight was Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. So these banks are enormous. Uh, You know, they're they're, they're some of the biggest companies in the world, up there with the Amazons and the Apples in terms of market cap. And yet, how often do we hear about them in the news and this is fascinating because you're absolutely right. And I couldn't have named, even if you, you know, even though I, I knew that probably the leaders would be the Chinese bank. Again, I didn't know. What I have heard and what we always hear about is, oh, there's a shadow banking issue there, or there's, there's, there's a certain IP issue. You hear a lot, I think, about the issues, and you don't hear so much. And then you hear this kind of big, I suppose, monolithic narrative of, but it's a powerhouse. And I think part of that, part of what I suppose, makes a lot of people nervous, is that disconnect, isn't it? Where we're hearing about very specific problems, but very general successes. Yeah, just in terms of its geography, it's a vast terrain. I mean, the, the, the spatial dynamics of China from, from the east to the west of China are completely different. So if you go to the west of China, where it borders with Russia, it's a very different geography and landscape and terrain. And the, and the, the Chinese people who live there are very different than the people who live in Shanghai, or, or Beijing. The, the thing that struck me the most when I was in, in China on business was the number of female CEOs that I met. So this idea of gender diversity just isn't an issue in China. Uh, China's a very so this weird combination of communism and capitalism. I, I mean, I remember seeing more Teslas in Beijing than I'd ever seen in, in my life. Uh, the, the, you know, one of the things that people, a lot of people used to say to me, look, there's no point in tackling climate change, Rob, until China gets its act together. But no, I mean, China's got, it's weird, it's got its foot in both camps. It's probably one of the worst in terms of coal and high carbon intensity energy production, but it's also leading the world in terms of how fast and, and just the sheer quantum of renewable energy that it is developing. And so it's absolutely on it. And just the scale and magnitude of, of China is, it, it's, just, it's just a level that we can't comprehend. And actually, it's a really good link to our next guest. Her name's Ashley Walker. And she's an astrochemist. She's currently at NASA. And an astrochemist is a, is a fascinating thing because she not only, as an astronomer, she not only tracks planets and, and examines them, but she, I suppose, dissects them and looks inside and finds out what they're made of and what, what that's doing, which is really, you know, right now as we're discovering all those new exoplanets using Kepler and so on, I suppose that puts her at the front of the search for livable planets and life. She's currently uh, also part of a movement called Black in Astro, Black in Chem and Black in Physics, which aim to get more black voices. And she's, she's behind getting female voices into academia itself and into these disciplines, not just for the good of the people there, and not just because it's the right thing to do, but to save academia itself from a kind of unidirectional thinking that's been dominated by 
too many white men for too long. And we spoke to her last week. First of all, an astrochemist. Now, please tell our listeners uh, at home how that relates to both astronomy and chemistry and what it means down to sort of brass tacks. So astrochemistry and how they relate. So one thing that isn't discussed too much in just everyday astronomy classwork. I mean, we discuss chemistry, but not to the depth of as we discuss it in physics, right? And so astrochemistry plays a vital role within all around the all around universe. Astrochemistry is looking at the reactions of molecules in space and how can we connect them to early Earth or what do we know about other planets? And in my again, in my case, moons. <laughs> How did you get into it? I mean, did you was it was it one of those epiphanies where you kind of looked up at the stars when you were, you know, a kid, or did you kind of did your studies guide you that way, or how did the astrochemist in you form? My uncle bought me a ruby red telescope um, when I was five years old, and so from that point um, in the summertime, my aunts used to take us to different places when I was ten, and one of the places being Atwood Planetarium which is the first um, planetarium in the Western Hemisphere. And so, which is here in Chicago, which I'm so fortunate, uh, you know, they've been a huge part of my career. We went there, they had an exhibit where you can jump on the scale to weigh your weight. And I'm, I'm, I'm so fascinated by it. I wanted to come back and do it again. And so unfortunately that did not happen for me. And so um, I took high school courses in earth and space science I also took courses in chemistry and biology in high school. And so I was watching the TV show Criminal Minds and I saw how like they were doing, you know, um, investigative work. And I also, you know, was more curious about forensic science. And so I said, maybe I should change my major to chemistry. And I was sold on being a forensic chemist. When I transferred in, they had told me like to start look, looking for research that you want to work with people on. And so I stumbled upon this lady who does um, space work, astronomy work. And I said, oh, I think it'll be cool to intern at NASA. However, I don't want to become an astronomer. I think it's, I, I just want to, you know, I just think that would be cool, you know, fit on my resume. <laughs> oh, how things turned for the better. <laughs> From that point on, I inquired about it. Everyone was like, yeah, you should work with her. And I ended up working with her. Um, and that is how I got my start um, in um, astrochemistry. We found out that there are no Black women with PhDs in the U.S. with uh, in astrochemistry. And so we were just like, what? <laughs> like, like, is this happening? And so... Um, Fast forward 2021, I'm going to go jump a little ahead. Um, my girl Jamila Pegues will be the first black woman to do so. And she will be the first black woman to receive a PhD in astronomy from Harvard. Well, while we're on this, are there any other things that you believe studying astrochemistry and becoming an astrochemist has taught you as a person? Or are there any ways in which that, that study or the discipline that it's taken have, have kind of changed you? Absolutely. It, oh, I've grown so much as an astrochemist. Um, I, I actually have like a mini welcome committee. So will we ever, will we find like a new black girl or something like that? We're like, hello. <laughs> and so it, it definitely helped me embrace 
a, a, tr- a culture and a tribe. And so I have my own tribe now in which I, you know, see women that look like me and I'm like, hey, sis, you know, let me, you know, you can do it. Um, so on and so forth. It also taught me to stand up for myself in so many different ways, which I had already always had that in me. However, it taught me how to be a better activist, how to be a better scientist. And do, do you actually feel in some way that you are helping with your activism, uh, again, on those hashtags, to establish these new paradigms where young girls can look at and see you now and go, actually, do you know what? This is a career. Yeah, so I think that like, like my goal is to make sure that we're more visible. One thing that I specifically do, and I don't know if people have paid attention, I make sure I show the ones that are not visible. And so there are women out here that are that are just behind the scenes. They don't say much. They don't do much. So it's definitely something that I'm really, really like, look at this. Look at them. Look at these faces. Look at these beautiful black faces. And so I just definitely want to make sure that people are aware of what's happening and what they can do better in this climate. It feels as if, and I've heard the phrase, that we're living through this golden age of especially astronomy, but also kind of science communication. Have you felt a difference that, you know, that people are more engaged with, especially girls with STEM, for example, or black women with the idea of science and with the idea of these things? Is that something that you can actually see happening in real time? Oh, yeah, I can see it happening in real time, but just not fast enough, unfortunately. One thing that I did notice is like when I do talk to some girls, they'll or older women in some cases, they'll say, oh, I liked it, but X, Y, and Z. And so one of the barriers and one of the things that I like to tell them is keep trying. There's going to be a teacher that is going to change your whole way of thinking because I hated math and I failed math several times. The easy math, right? When I was in junior college, I felt the easiest math like several times. And I was just like, why couldn't, you know, I couldn't get it and so on and so forth. And all it it took was one professor. And so with this professor, he helped me understand what I was doing wrong. And once I start catching on, I start getting other professors that will help. And so I met my first black math teacher and she was just like, you know you can skip and go to calculus, uh, pre-calc, right? And I was just like, I can't. She was like, yeah. And that's exactly what I did. She saw the work that I was doing and she was just like, this, 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 this. And so this, the message in that is seeing Black women like that and women in general um, that have paved the way for me to, to, you know, be this astrochemist. When girls and women have women who are like, okay, what are you doing? Let me make sure you're doing it right. You're doing it right. Let me teach you these steps. It makes an absolute difference. So Rob, that first of all, I mean, Ashley there appeals, I think, to, to everybody's inner geek. You know, the idea that we can we can start to look at the molecules that the universe is made of, <laughs> the molecules in space, and actually divine from that um, whether or not Moons of Saturn are habitable, just fantastic. But more importantly, I think, there was this fantastic point that she made where she said just one person, just one professor can reframe 
and open up these new vistas. And I was the Harvard Business Review, in fact, today has just got this this piece out that says if there's a problem that you can't solve, get somebody to help you reframe. And it, that feels very much like something that you might actually be um, advising somebody to do. Yeah, no, I, I think the theme of uh, today's podcast is all about reframing and it's all about perspective. And actually, just to link to our next session, I was very lucky to have attended a talk several times, actually, by a guy called Giles Dooley, who is a very famous photographer uh, who was out in Afghanistan and stood on a landmine and lost three, lem- three limbs. So he's got no legs. Uh, he's only got one arm. This is a guy who used to take photos for Esquire and GQ. And he was talking about how he took control of his disability and say, I can see things that other photographers can't see, and I can take photos, and I can connect with people that others can't do. And so when Ashley talks about how her professor got her to change the way of her thinking, I think about how Giles Dooley changed the way he thought about his life and his future, cool guy taking photos of Lenny Kravitz and all the rest of GQ, to now being this incredible person who can go into different parts of the world and take photographs that no one else has ever taken before because of what has happened to him. And there's, well, there's, there's something really in that, isn't there? Because the other thing, I mean, we know that successful businesses over the long term tend to be those with a balanced board because they can um, spot opportunity. They've got different perspectives and different points of view and spot perhaps even threats and, and emergent ideas in a way that perhaps the more kind of um, – uh, how would you call it, the more sort of closed shop uh, boards maybe can't do. And I think Ashley's point there about how um, she wanted to be visible and she wants her success and her academic record and those of some of her cohort to be visible so that it can change the way in which, one, in which people think, but actually can change the pool of ideas that is available to to academics and to researchers. And that, that feels very much like something we can all learn from. Yeah, look, I, I, you know, I've been following her on 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 Twitter and her hashtag Black In for a while. I think the work she does on shining a light on different women and black people in in the sciences is brilliant. I, I'm reminded of the scene. I don't know if you've watched the movie Hidden Figures, which is about three black uh, female. They're called computers. There, that they they do calculations, and in one of them, I think it's Mary Jackson is talking to a NASA scientist, and she makes the quip. Would you try to be an engineer if you were a white man? And and she says, I wouldn't have to. I'd already be one. And so I think there's this sort of latent assumption, you know, in the 60s, but sadly that still plays through about who is or isn't an engineer. And then later on, there, there's, a again, a, a senior NASA engineer saying to, to, to Catherine, I think, and he, Catherine Johnson, he says, look, there's no protocol for women attending. And she then quits back. There's no protocol for a man circling the earth either, sir. <laughs> it's a fantastic line. And, and, and actually, on that note, one can't help but be. I mean, I'm sitting here and I can see you, Robin, you can see me. We're both aware that, painfully aware sometimes, that we are two white men talking about this. And of course, it's great to be able to use this platform. But if there are voices out there who are different and who want to, to talk to us on this podcast, I think it's a really good opportunity to throw this open, isn't it? And just to say, get in touch. We would love to speak to you. Absolutely. You know, this is a brilliant platform to, to, to have that conversation. Now, speaking of brilliant platforms, 
I suppose Netflix is the platform that has swept all before it over the past five years. And it's an incredible place to have a movie. And it is a movie. I, I don't want to say documentary, but there's a movie, Rising Phoenix. Of course, it's a feature documentary, but it feels so much like something that uh, Sofia Coppola might produce. It's a visual feast, and it's about the Paralympics. We spoke to the producers, Greg Nugent and Barnaby Spurrier, about the journey and about the struggle to get it financed, the struggle to get it made, and the success that it's had. Here's Greg. You've worked on this for for 10 years. I've only seen it recently. What an experience. Um, And what it is an experience, isn't it? More than more than just a film. It's more than just a piece of something that you'll watch and then forget about. It's it's quite an epiphany, I think. Is is that a common reaction from people who've seen it? Well, yeah, I'd say very common, actually, in a really wonderful way. The feedback we've had it really since the day it came out, or it has really been remarkable and um, and incredibly affirming that we that it was right to go down this path and do this thing, and makes you very proud. But actually, we've had I've had I mean some incredible feedback, and actually I haven't been able to write back to people because there's just too much of it. But the, one of the best bit of feedback I had was from a lady who who had had meningitis and had ended up with very deep scars. And so she used to be a swimmer and a, you know, a gym addict, but she didn't go out after, you know, and she, apparently she watched the film with her husband, watched it again. And she said, I want to go to the gym. And this got her over that point. And she said, but I don't have any shorts. And he said, use mine. And she'd gone straight to the gym and started swimming again. And so uh, that's a, fairly extreme but brilliant example but actually yeah i think we're very proud to say that your reaction is 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 what the rest of the world's been saying this is the 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 thing i found so enthralling about the film i think we're not just talking about the paralympics actually we're not just talking about a bunch a bunch of incredible people we're actually talking about the idea of difference and the idea of what it what it means to excel or what it means to to be challenged or what it means to be human and normal and accepted and embraced and welcomed it, it feels like there's something it's an essay on the richness of the of human experience somehow actually it, it's an extraordinary process making the film that the guys who run the ipc talk about the, the i can't remember their, their exact word but they, they talk about the kind of the love and the passion you learn to feel for the international paralympic movement and it is extraordinary Every, everyone who began to work on it greg's worked on it far longer than i have um, but everyone, the directors, the crew, the producers, as they became to know the movement as opposed to the individuals, it kind of gets into your bloodstream. It's something that you begin to understand is probably the one of the most important undersung movements of the last 70 years. I think we were very conscious, and it's, this is not for any, any way to take away from any of the other movements, but all the other kind of movements of, of equal rights have, have, have been having their moment, as you just said, in the last particularly in the last decade and, and even more so in the last three years, really. But the, the, the movement around disability has still been slightly in the shadows. And I think you're right. What, what the film did, and, and it was part of the intention, but I think we, until we'd really finished it, we didn't know how powerful it was going to be. It began to throw a spotlight on, on a whole world of people who do suffer from prejudice and are, are overlooked by their, their governments and by their societies. And for those people who haven't seen the film, there are some extraordinary scenes and some extraordinary techniques that you use, I think, for uh, for your portraiture. 
I mean, the idea that you we start meeting people as as faces close up, and we start hearing from them as personalities, and then we draw back, and there are these very very powerful costume shots, aren't there? And very sort of powerful, very almost coup de théâtre, where you see the Paralympian who is maybe in some very striking dress and standing there. And it's actually a way of, I think, it feels like it's a way of spinning uh, on its head, the idea that, oh, now we're going to meet a Paralympian and you know this about them already. Is that something that you did on purpose? I used to whisper in Barney's ear on this when I was a director of London 2012. Come on, we've got to make this documentary. This is a hell of a story. You know, like, I think the reason that I felt that is because I kept having Paralympians say to me, oh, God, stop talking about my disability. Talk about what I can do. And so I was, and listen, until I'd met a lot of Paralympians, I didn't know much about um, people with disability because disability was, you know, in relative terms, hidden. And you didn't meet many people at work with disability. You didn't meet many people in the pub with disability. And you didn't see many people on the telly. And then we, we made a very brief decision in 2010 to hire Channel 4 to do the Paralympics rather than the Beeb. And I think that kind of um, was an early sign of, the way we would approach this project, even though it was probably quite subconscious. But I'll never forget when Barnaby and I started to sit around the table and look at the budgets. And, you you know, you could squeeze the budget down and you could squeeze it down and squeeze it down, squeeze it down. And then I'd go, it's going to be crap. Because I feel, with no disrespect to loads of projects that have tried to change attitudes on disability, I feel that the production values are caught by the budget. So when Peter and Ian... And particularly Ian would say, and then we're going to have a helicopter and it's going to go over the ocean. And actually, we never, ever tried to put them off, <laughs> you know, like, and what I learned, what I, learned, what I personally learned through the process is, is, you know, similar to when we work with Danny Boyle on the ceremony is your job is not to try and put them off anything. It's to try and make them get as close as they can to the dream. And therefore, what I think the, the Peter and Ian, we call, you know, the boys had is this real visceral visual experience that you would ha- you would easily have in an in an olympic film but it had never happened in the paralympics and that's why i feel so many people are reacting to what we've done because standards of production that we put into it were you know hollywood-esque you referred to the channel Four kind of restaging of the paralympics and their reframing which was very very bold you know the concept of superhuman the question is, I mean, that idea of superhuman and of the idea of real-life bionics is one extreme. And, of course, the, the, the status quo where people are filmed as if they're part of a, a charity programme is the, is the other, other end. Did you find that there, there were, in fact, you know, humans in there that didn't want necessarily to be seen as the superhumans or the superheroes or, or whatever and, and, and wanted to explore their complexity with you? I've literally just come off a call five minutes before this one with a very senior French Paralympian. And the whole debate is around the superhuman concept and this word is inspirational, which he would push back on. He, I mean, he, just to, to be for the record, he absolutely loved the film. And he was saying, even in France, it's, it's already had a transformational impact on the way in which not just society, but actually the, the, the because Paris are holding the games in 2024. And he said it's already had an impact in the way in which Paris is beginning to view the way they will stage and promote the games. So he wasn't averse to it. But I think the next thing is to say, the, ne- the next challenge in a way is to say, they're not superhumans, they're not bionic, they're not, I mean, they are elite because they work harder than any other athletes. Um, but then so do all athletes work hard. But the next challenge is to say, these are human beings who have 
a set of challenges. Right now, we all have sets of challenges. I'm, I'm repeating Michael's words, really. You know, we're all in a lockdown. And he was saying that's the first time there's been this sort of extraordinary leveling moment where every single human being is facing challenges. And he's a wheelchair user. And he was saying, yes, of course, I have challenges. But my wife, who is, quote, able-bodied, has all sorts of other challenges that she has to deal with in, in, in terms of her life. So I think the, the superhuman thing was an extraordinary reframing that Channel 4 did, and it was absolutely right at the time. The debate now moves on to say they're remarkable people and they're very special people because they work hard and they have challenges that most of the world doesn't have. But then, yes, they're not superhuman. And certainly, I think one of the key debates is around this, this idea of being inspirational um, because they want to be inspirational because they train hard, because they take their athleticism extraordinarily seriously not because they're in a car crash when they were four, not because they, 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 they had some terrible illness, not because they were born with, with impairments. They want to be treated as, as equal human beings. One of the, the heartaches is that you just have to keep to the story that you have a lot of the time and that you have to go, now I know that's absolutely fascinating. Would that there were space for that? Have there been things that you wished you could have included or, or were there stories that you just felt that they don't, fit the rubric but bloody hell that's powerful i didn't feel there were major strands that were omitted there were more athletes there were you know a dozen more athletes we would have loved to have included but again you know you have a certain time length and, and, and that balance between telling the history of the movement and portraying the lives of contemporary athletes i think we got more or less right so no i think i think it felt like we, we we'd done it you know we delivered that story which was as i say 1948 to you know to, to Rio and got a sense of the fact that, again, Greg was always very sort of keen for us to be clear about it. it wasn't a straight line transition. It didn't start in 1948 and just get bigger and better and wealthier and more successful. There were constant obstacles thrown in, thrown in its way. It's, it's, it's not a straight line. It's not inevitable. Rob, there's something deep there, though, isn't there, about the idea of making, if you like, making a thing into a capital T, a thing. So establishing new norms and new thought patterns. And it always feels to me, I guess, something that I know I'm grateful for. If I have, if I have a, a problem or a question or something, I know that I will usually tend to fall back on the things I know. And we all have that kind of homing instinct. It's like our comfort blanket. Well, I'll just do what I did last time and it got me an okay return or it got me, you know, it sorted the problem out or it sellotapes it for now. And actually, most of what I crave and most of what I know I, I, I'm very grateful for is the ability for somebody to say, look, it doesn't have to be that way. There's, there's this way. There's this new paradigm. There's this new way of looking at it. Step away from your comfort zone start to see it and when you start to see it whether it's a you know as ashley would see a new a new planet or the possibility of life somewhere else or academia in a new light and all the hidden figures suddenly come to prominence or th this kind of this spectrum of brilliance that we've all been blind to in the human experience it does change things doesn't it for for us all yeah i i trying to remember who who says it in the movie but there are kind of nine athletes that are kind of you know that we meet but one of them says, you just need to accept the situation in which you are and discover how beautiful it is. And I, I suppose, you know, it, it's difficult as, as, as someone who is, you know, ha has all their limbs and is, and is able in that sense to imagine what might happen if you, you know, you've, you find out that you have to kind of amputate your daughter's leg or, you know, you've had meningitis. But 
but again, you know, all of these incredible people go through that journey and and accept the situation, and then they and then they move forward, and 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 they make brilliant things happen. I mean, there's an Italian young lady; she's a fencer, uh, and she kind of describes herself as the phoenix. and And I love the quote from Confucius, where he talks about our greatest glory is not in never failing, but in rising every time we fall. And that that that's what that that movie and what Greg and Barnaby have done is is exactly is exactly that absolutely and if there's a theme for today beyond I suppose a supporting theme beyond the idea of reframing and seeing things from new perspectives and checking things out from other points of view it probably would be that it's the idea that that can open up suddenly things that we would never expect um and I know I'm very grateful for everybody who's taken part as an interviewee in, in, in this episode specifically um, for sharing those perspectives uh, with us. Brilliant and incredible episode. Thanks, Matt. And for those of you at home who want to know more, Rising Phoenix is on Netflix. Ashley Walker is on the hashtags Black in Astro, Black in Chem and Black in Physics on Twitter. And George Magnus's book Red Flags is out now. Thanks from everybody here at Tomorrow Comes Today, the thought leadership podcast from St. James's Place. We wish you well wherever you are.